0: Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Nawaz Ahmed, author of the novel Radiant Fugitives.
1: I obsessively read War and Peace through the, <laughs> through the writing of this book at least three times, I think. Um, I would read a page every day, every day before starting to write.
0: We'll be back with Nawaz Ahmed after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com draft firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, But there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview, then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Nawaz Ahmed, author of the novel Radiant Fugitives. Before turning to writing, Ahmed was a computer scientist researching search algorithms for Yahoo!, he was born in Tamil Nadu, India, and holds an MFA from University of Michigan at Ann Arbor and currently lives in Brooklyn. His novel Radiant Fugitives tells the story of Seema, an immigrant from India living in San Francisco who is bisexual, shunned by her father, and not accepted by her devout Muslim sister Tahara, who lives in Texas. Seema is working for Kamala Harris's Attorney General campaign during the Obama era. She is nine months pregnant and estranged from the black father of her unborn child. Her mother comes from India to be there for the birth of the child, which also forces Seema's sister Tahara to come from Texas to join them. What unfurls is a tapestry of emotions, misunderstandings, old grudges, and betrayals. The novel is told from the point of view of Seema's just-born baby boy, and interrogates the ideas of forgiveness, family bonds, acceptance, and loyalty. I began the discussion with Nawaz Ahmed with me sharing a summary of the novel. The basic premise is of Radiant Fugitives, and it takes place in two time periods. Um, one time period is a little more present, and you have your main character is named Seema, and she is also an Indian queer woman who came from India to come to America because she had bigger dreams, wanted to be more free, wanted to express herself. She came via via London, and she is a political activist and a very talented one. She worked on Howard Dean's campaign. She worked on... Um, Obama's campaign. She um, is is very enmeshed in liberal politics in the US and she lives in San Francisco. And she ends up marrying a young black man who's an attorney who is also working for Obama. They met each other at a protest for the Iraq war. And when it opens when the book actually opens, you your narrator is her newly born infant who is born between her and Bill, this man that she she met. Although they had since divorced, he had relinquished any rights to the child. And her sister and mother had come to visit. Her sister lives in Texas. Her mother is back in India. And the three of them have a very strained relationship because Seema was basically... Um, cut out of the family by her father because of her queerness, and they used to be very, very close. And her sister Tahera is a very devout and practicing Muslim and doesn't approve of Seema's life choices. And their mother, Nafisa, is dying and just trying to make peace and maybe right some wrongs within her family. And then that's all complicated by Seema's relationship with this young woman and we also go back in time a little bit to when she first met Bill. So we're looking at the American political landscape and what's going on with Obama and Proposition 8 in California about the legality of gay marriage. And then the, the sort of culminating incident we learn in the very first page is that Sima is dying in childbirth and died. Um, and that is the basic goings-on of the book. What did I miss? Is there anything else you want to say?
1: There's also, I think, in the current of the book, the wave of uh, anti-Muslim sentiment that has overtaken um, the U.S. roughly around the time following before and after, I mean, 9-11, but especially with Obama's rise as well.
0: You are folding in the American political landscape. You're folding in sexuality, Keats' poetry, the meaning of poetry in life, this, this Islamic faith, um, uh, just living in America as an immigrant, um, the, the death of, of a mother, of two mothers, um, the Black Panthers, you got in there because Bill's dad was a Black Panther. How did you even start... Managing this. It's like they're all your employees. How did you manage them <laughs> in your in your organization of your book?
1: That is probably why the book took 10 years. And the way the book was built up was in stages. I think the very first draft I wrote had most of the happenings in the week when Tahara and Sima's mother Nafisa come. To San Francisco. So, the happenings of that week was what my first draft was really about. And the rest of the stories, I think each draft built a little bit on that. Like, I realized that the very first draft had a very good picture of Tahara, but not enough of Sima or Nafisa. And so, the next draft was about fleshing out who Sima was. There was a draft when I realized that Obama was. Coming into the book. And then I had to find out how to bring him fully into the book. How do I talk about the period of um, his campaign? So there was one draft that brought a lot more of his campaign into the book. There was one draft that brought more Bill into the book and Bill's background as his. So each draft, I think, made the book bigger. So I went from an initial draft that was like a 100,000 words to almost 200,000 words and 800 pages. Um, so each draft seemed to, much to my agent's uh, consternation, each draft seemed to get bigger. And um, the very last draft, my editor was very good in trying to figure out how to compress the book back again into something more manageable. And so... In the last draft, we did a lot of editing and removing stuff that um, was not essential so that people would still get the forward thrust of the very first draft. And so I was very happy with that. The fact that the last draft um, managed to have the speed of the first draft, but still managed to encompass all these various um, Uh, issues that I was trying to get into the book.
0: Were you tempted ever to, as you wrote and it got bigger and bigger and bigger, to just go back to that original kind of domestic story you wrote about these three people just to make it easier for yourself?
1: Some agents before my current agent and many readers wanted me to do that. They were like, why do you want to bring in politics? Why do you want to bring in all these other things? We much prefer for the story about the three women and a domestic story. Um, And I resisted that because I felt that in order to tell the story about these three women, I could not tell it without this other story of what was happening in America. That in order to understand Sima or Tahara, um, you really needed to know what was going on in America at that time. That was one, thing. And the other thing I think I also was um, how little we talk about how much politics affects our lives. These things happening in the country affect me. I mean, the choice of whether gay people have get married or not affect me and my characters. And uh, what happens with Islamophobia affects my characters and me. So these are things that were happening in the country. And it seemed Impossible not to write about. It seemed like that was what the book should be about. And the domestic drama, of course, plays out in that arena. Another thing that I was passionately obsessed about was how do we make decisions? Like me choosing to leave India was not just a decision that I made by myself. It was the fact that it was very hard to be gay at that time. And there were all these choices we make that the world imposes on us. We feel like it's free will in a way, but there are these constraints. And that was, I think, another theme that I started discovering while I was writing the book. How does the world impose its constraints on us and how do we begin to make sense of it? So I did not want to go back to that first draft. And another thing that I have to say that gave me courage was... I obsessively read War and Peace through the <laughs> through the writing of this book at least three times, I think. Um, I would read a page every day, every day before starting to write. And there's something that War and Peace does to you. It says, hey, you can write about the war. You can write about the people. You can write about the domestic. You can write about the political. You can write about all these things. You can even write essays in a book, which Tolstoy does. Um, and gave me permission to write what I wanted to write.
0: You know, Seema is really the the absolute nucleus of this book. She's the character that is the focus, although we're really hearing about her from the point of view of, of her infant son, her newly born son. It's almost as if it's her point of view. I mean, it's not, but we're just so close to her. And I'm wondering, you know, obviously there's many parallels, I think, between you and her, like not everything, but you you said you're gay, she's gay, she left India, you left India. Tell me about what you wanted to put about her on the page. And was it hard or necessary for you to separate some of your experiences from hers?
1: I think I definitely wanted to explore um, uh, what it means to be queer as an immigrant, as a Muslim, as a person who has left their home behind. Um, Unlike Seema, my family did not disown me, but there is a distance that I felt. And I think a lot of queer people feel because the world is not set up to give us good models of how to be, at least it wasn't then, and now things may be changing a little bit for the younger generation. But um, growing up, I think it felt like if I'm not going to get married and if I'm not going to have children and if a family is something that I have to construct by myself, the notion of the chosen family, and then how do we go about it and what are the choices we make and what does it preclude? And I think those questions were important to me then and are still important to me now. And those were what I brought to Seema. Seema's decision whether to have a baby or not, whether to, is itself a decision she needs to make when she finds out she's pregnant. Does she want to have the baby? But then she's also afraid, like how is she supposed to bring up the baby by herself? There's also the question of Seema wanting something more from Tahara. Like, what does she, I think that's a big question that I had to keep um, discovering as I wrote the drafts. Like, what does Seema want from Tahara, from her sister, who is this religious sister who maybe has all these complicated feelings towards Seema? And, um, And it took me by surprise, I think, even until the last draft, I was trying to figure that answer out, and the answer came to me, in a shock of recognition that and i don't want to go too much into it because i want the readers to dis- discover that 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 there are things she wants from tahara even given tahara's piety and devoutness and all the rest and that is something that i myself have to contend with being an immigrant having left my family behind and trying to figure out how to um make a new home for myself in this country which has its ways of othering brown people, Muslim people, queer people. So I think those issues of Seema were issues that I brought into the book. Um, But of course Seema is different, she's a lesbian, she can have a baby, she's also this activist and everything that I've never had a past about. So her past is very different from mine. And so she's a different character. And I just had to let her be who she was.
0: One of my favorite lines in the book is, to me, on some levels, summed up a lot of the book, not just, I mean, definitely the immigrant story, but also you could substitute in what it feels like to be to be queer, or what it feels like to be devoutly Muslim in America. And you write, living in America is like living in an in-law's house. And I love that line, and, and you go on to talk about like h- how you have to learn the rituals of another family and adjust and accommodate to this other family, and you also have to like charm and beguile and wish them well, and you have to maybe fight harder to to um to to win over naysayers or surrender or just learn how to become indispensable so they need you, and that's basically how you were describing what it feels like to live in America. I just wanted to ask you if this was something that you've always felt living here. If, if when you were writing, you kind of discovered this and realized, "Aha!"
1: I think definitely a process of discovery and recognition is how I would put that. Because I think up till two thousand eight or two thousand ten, before I began writing, the America that I had entered was giving me some of the things I wanted, which was to come out to produce. Work that was being used. I I was part of the search engine team at Yahoo and wrote some of the search algorithms that powered Yahoo. So that was exciting. America had also given me the freedom to quit my job and get an MFA. So there were all these things that I was getting. And uh, um, it was, I think, afterwards, after I started writing and then I was immersed in the writing that the whole um, character also seemed to shift because when Obama came, there was so much hope. And then there was a steady eroding of that hope almost immediately. And I think at that time, I did begin to feel like this outsider. And now I had this means of expressing that, which was through the writing of this book. And it seems, I think, very natural that that, those feelings went into, into the book. And that passage that you mentioned is such a conflicting passage because that is how um, people in India would accommodate. I mean, that is very a traditional way of looking, how you give your daughter away, she goes and becomes part of this other family and she has to adapt to it. So there is this, um, what you would call an old fashioned way, like this is how we used to be, um, and which Tahara. Kind of rejects that and she wants to be who she wants to be but what you're saying now is that it applies to me and uh, applies to a lot of people who are trying to live in america i think that was the recognition and the discovery that what nafisa is saying applies seems to be the message that is given to all of us here and we all have to contend with that otherwise be the outsider and be looking from the outside in, which a lot of my characters in the book end up doing if they resist that impulse to assimilate.
0: And I think you could even extend that metaphor to, you know, you have this this kind of generic, expected, general, most common American, right? The white, heterosexual, Christian American. So anyone, for SEMA. It's like in this country, she's also living in a mother-in-law's house because she's queer. And for Tah- Tahara, she's a devout Muslim. So I just found it to be a really interesting line. And with that, with the, Seema's queerness and Tahara's devoutness... You would think that potentially they would see their commonalities because they're both kind of outsiders. They both risk violence to their bodies and um, way of life because they're different, but their differences only pull them apart. Sima definitely judges Tahera for her intense devoutness because there's so many rules and they don't accommodate people like Sima. And they're so strict. But I think Tehera also, like, she judges her sister. She judges her sister's best friend, Yaz, who was, I love him. He was um her, her best friend who was also a gay um, Muslim in San Francisco. And so what could have brought them together really pulled them apart and was so difficult for their relationship and for their mom, their dying mom, to watch.
1: Yes, it could have brought them together but there is and i think this tension in religion and i mean in families right we have this shared history and this shared way in which the world probably has the same constraints on the family and yet within the family we have these um, intense rivalries and resentments and jealousies and pet and pettiness and all the rest which i wanted to also talk about i mean these are the kind of feelings that we are not really permitted to express it's like we have to be well adjusted we have to be these people who who can rise above ourselves rise above what this is considered as pettiness but i wanted. To talk about these feelings as as real as these resentments and jealousies and rivalries are part of what makes us human, and these are also what causes for these bigger political things to happen. It is not that um, the um, divisions in the country, I think, are built also on top of these small emotions. They're not very different. Why we have so much resentment, how we exploit others, how we want to put down other communities so that we feel better about ourselves, how we um, want to differentiate ourselves from somebody else in the community. I think these are the reasons why we have the divisions in the country. It does not it stems from these other small emotions that play out as humans within families, within communities, within colleagues. So, so what I wanted to explore, I think, in the book was draw these connections and uh, so that these small things we may assume are just about pettiness, or um, but they're not they are what are causing these bigger divisions in the country. And I wanted to um, bring that out and and explore that. They they are not different levels of being. They are all part of the same thing. That's exactly why we have so much division in the country, is that as a family, within that itself, we have these small uh, divisions that can fracture the family, and they can lead to things that fracture the country.
0: And you can see on the family level how very, very, very small, seemingly maybe benign things that happen in childhood between siblings can grow, like the tiny seeds. Like, for instance, in their family in India, their father and I want to ask you about this. He, he really valued poetry. He loved John Keats. He loved, and they, they had a practice, which is also something done in Islam, where you you read and recite poetry. And they they went to contests, and Sima was very good at it and won. And Tahara was not as good. And Sima was like the apple of the father's eye. And then fell so hard, like from that garden because of her choice. And I think Tahera was always trying to catch up, please her her parents, but she she was always behind. So those little rifts in the very beginning ended up pulling them into very, very different lives. Things you're not even maybe aware of, the the consequences as the ripple effect. So I just wanted to note that and hear if you have any thoughts about that and then ask you about the poetry and the readings.
1: I mean, Tahara also wins, but you're right. She's not the spectacular uh, performer that Seema is. And uh, the father does assume that Seema is meant for some greatness that he does not expect of Tahara. And I think that uh, expectations does color Tahara's reactions and her feelings towards her sister and her father. And so she tends to, I think, start building walls around herself at a very young age. The second part of that was um, the poetry itself. In India, we grew up having to recite poetry. I mean, this was something we did in school. And uh, uh, not all schools, I think. I went to a school like Sima and Tahara, what we call the Anglo-Indian schools, which were a relic of um, a colonial past and which did have a focus a lot on British poetry and British literature. Um, we learned how we had to learn the solitary Reaper and uh, the, a lot of, the British poets by heart and recite them. That, of course, made its way into the book. Um, the father, Naimullah, is an advocate of that. I mean, he has, I think, um, like so many of people in the 1970 who grew up right immediately after or independence and who were brought up in schools like that. We they do have a love for um, British literature, and it's dying out now, I think, because less and less schools are teaching it. Um, but then he values them more than the local literature, the Urdu ghazals, and the things that his wife loves, and puts it at um, and puts down his wife's love for Urdu and its ghazals, and elevates uh, British poetry. Um, while his uh, wife, and who gives up her passion for Ultu at that point when she marries him. Um, And I did, I think, want to talk about that aspect of um, the Indian past, where where for us literature meant British literature, at least for some of us, and not all the other beautiful... um, Poetry and fiction and uh, narrative storytelling that was part of our heritage as well, and which we did not have much access to. Um, and I wanted to talk about that in the book and explore the kind of effects it has because, um, for me, living here now, I feel a sense of loss that I did not, while I was in India. Um, follow up on these other things that it's only now that I'm actually trying to learn Urdu. Like, um, we never learned in India, though we spoke Urdu at home, we never learned to read or write. We just spoke it. And only now am I making some time to learn Urdu here um, in the US. And I think that kind of um loss the goes back to what I'm talking about at uh, the kind of constraints that the world and its history places on you. Like um, we are shaped by our histories so much more than we give credit for and uh, and that is something we carry through our lives. And Sima, atara, uh, started with that, but then when she sees that her father is not the truly liberal person he claims to be, when he casts out Seema, she rejects that whole uh, British baggage and decides that she wants to accept just Islam and her heritage and uses that as a kind of shield against her father.
0: And her choices are really hard. I mean, to, to choose that life, she, she definitely is guessing that because while she's tending to her sister back in Texas where she lives, there is some violence against the mosque that she's part of. And she has two children. And you could see, like, her son, not that he's, like, becoming a, a, a radical, um, you know, suicide bomber type, but she is teaching him the laws and the rules of the religion and he's a very literal young man. He he takes it so literally. So he's starting go- to go down a path of I mean, real pain because he see he doesn't understand why other like white people hate him, but also just getting into the religion so much. I mean she has some moments where she's like, Maybe this isn't the right life for us.
1: Definitely a shred the young son is uh, questioning how he fits into America and how his religion fits into America. Um, there is, I think, in Ashad, he does, as you say, love what Islam brings to him. There is this mystical element, I think, that, uh, which not all Muslims would agree to, that Islam has a mystical element. Um, but he responds to it. For example, whenever he hears the recitations, it just moves him and uh, completely. And um, and for him, he finds it, as you say, um, ununderstandable why it's hated so much. And he's not exactly being radicalized, but he is, I think, reading up a lot of things about Islam on the web, behind his parents' back. They don't allow him actually to use the internet at home, but he is. And I think the internet is a dangerous place to be for any kind, any kid. And um, we see that happening not just among Muslim kids, but also what's happening a lot in the kind of, and I'll maybe use the word radicalization here again, in the US, on other fronts like whether it is vaccine radicalization or whether it is uh, um evangelical radicalization i mean it's happening in various places and the and i think roughly it started happening around that time 2008 2009 when facebook and all these uh, things started uh, becoming so popular so i think that is one of the things that I was trying to explore with him, that he is this kid and his parents do um, try to keep him safe, but there is a big world out there that he can access. There are ideas out there that he also has to contend with, and the family has to deal with those as well. So he does read about all the, for example, all the lies about the prophet, and it does make him very angry that there are people who hate whom he revere,s and he has to deal with that, and he deals with that in his own small way, and and now his family has to deal with the fact that he has these uh, emotions. I did, I think, want to make sure that we do not really consider. Arshad as being radicalized, he's a he's a he's 11 year old, and he does not know what to do with his feelings or what to do with a world that looks down upon him or hates what he what he revere,s and um, I think that feeling is present in so many of us these days, the feeling that we are being imposed upon and people look down upon us. And then what do we do with this anger that seems to be playing out in so many parts of our lives? And though I knew I was writing about Islam and about these Muslim characters, I felt to me that I could set take the religion away and set it in a different religion or in a, even without religion, and I would still have a very similar book. At least plot-wise, that these things that were happening in the book are not some things that were related to Islam. That this was something that was going on on a much larger scale across so many communities, and in so many other families. And uh, to me, I was not just writing about Islam; I was writing about, hopefully, what was ha- what I was thinking was happening in the world. Um, with so many different communities.
0: Well, it kind of makes me think, you know, in general, during childhood, things are kind of black and white. You learn what you learn at school. You learn what your your parents teach. And it's only as you get older and generally older than 11 where you start to realize that you can think for yourself, that you can interpret things from yourself, that influences from other areas come in. So there's that element, like just being stuck in childhood and whatever doctrine, you know, you grow up in an anti-vax family, you're going to be an anti-vaxxer until maybe other information comes in. But that other information now that you're talking about is the internet and you can find what you're looking for. And I'm wondering how, given what you just said about that, how that makes you feel about the work you did at
1: Yahoo. (laughs) Oh, wow. Very mixed feelings. Um, One of the reasons I left computer science, I think, was uh, around that time, and there was all this talk about how we were going to change the world for the better. And that was uh, very inspiring. But the reality of it was that a lot of the technologies we were developing depended on advertising as the way of making money. And it became very clear that it wasn't really about changing the world, but or if the world was going to be changed, then it was going to be changed in a way that um, would be influenced by how these companies made money. And I think the way um, a lot of social media and all the rest these days keep us, Engaged is, uh, and they have to if they're going to sell advertisements. And uh, is um, is it's become more and more clear that it is by this by this kind of, um, for want of a better word, radicalization. You just keep reading the same set of things. You keep coming back to, and there is a feeling of outrage, of uh, so that. Outrage sells better than anything else. I mean, Hope does too and Pretty Kittens, those are good. But um, Outrage seems to get people coming back and being involved in ways that um, other things do not. And I think we are seeing the effects of that. And um, there's, of course, a lot of good that's also happening in social media uh, through this through the internet and uh, but there is this other aspect which I think has to deal with how money is made and uh, and until we are able to figure out better ways in which um, companies can make money without getting us all so enraged we we will be going down this path
0: and because you switched from that to writing um... I'm curious about how your parents feel about that because you, you said you left because you wanted kind of a different life and you left under the guise of IT and I could imagine how that, you know, it sounds like you had a really great education in, in India and now you have this book. How do your parents feel about you now being a writer and have they read your book?
1: Um, they have read my book. My mother is an avid reader herself and uh, my father says he's going to finish the book in a couple of weeks, or he's, he's a slow reader, but he's reading it. Um, they have been very supportive. They did not blink. Maybe they did, but they didn't tell me about it when I said I was quitting my job. Um, they've known about me wanting to write, and uh, I couldn't have asked for more supportive parents as far as the writing goes there was no pressure to tell me like what are you doing Uh, they just assumed that i knew what i was doing and um, i did not i did not know what i was doing and uh, but they've had faith in me and i'm very grateful for that Uh, as for my mother's reaction to the book she said it's a very good book so I'll I'll take that.
0: <laughs> Tell me about the title, Radiant Fugitives.
1: It was not the title I had while writing the book. I had a different title. And um, it was my editor who decided, he felt that the book required a grander title than what I had that spoke more to its ambitions. And uh, he came up with that, and I immediately felt that he was right, that the title Radiant Fugitive speaks to um, aspects of the book that the original title did not capture. For me, this notion of light is something that is key to the book, Um, the light that we seek, and how that light is a fugitive light. It's something that we sometimes grasp and sometimes don't. Um, So but that is fugitive in the sense of the adjective. And uh, the Radiant Fugitives also talks about us as fugitives. We are all seeking this light or hope that we can escape to this light. And um, Radiant Fugitives is us moving towards that light.
0: Tell me about the decision to have Israq be the narrator. And this is the infant child that is born in the beginning of the book to Sima.
1: Yeah, the narrator was a discovery. My very first draft did not have the baby narrating. Um, I had woken up one morning, and this was like 2007, with this scene of three women. And uh, uh, and the, no, and the first line of the novel, of what I thought would be a novella at that time, but I felt when I was trying to write it down as a novel, like it just would not flow. And one of the reasons it did not flow was I needed a distance from the characters. Uh, I needed to be able to um, not let myself and my judgments about these characters color the book, I felt like, especially towards Tahara, I was being very judgmental. And I needed to come to a place of acceptance of who Tahara was, independent of my own feelings towards Islam or what I felt like Islam was imposing on me. And um, I was running one day um, around the pond in during my MFA, that it suddenly struck me that if I had Seema's baby narrate, I would get all the things I wanted. One was the distance. I could have this baby, this newborn baby, who doesn't really know the world and who can be more accepting than I am, could accept these characters for who they are. That was one thing. And the other um, aspect of it was, it would break the sense of realism. I did not I did not really think at that time that I was writing a realist novel. I. I like to have, I was writing these magical stories at that time with some unconventional narratives and it felt like I wanted to be given the freedom to write a book that would move in different ways, in a sense, to figure out what a novel could be. And having the baby narrator right off the bat um, say, I'm just newly born and I'm going to narrate the story Felt like it gave me permission to take the novel in whatever direction I wanted. It, I could bring in Keats poetry, I could bring in snippets of the Quran, I could have Obama speak, I could have uh, various characters speak, I could do whatever I wanted to do with the novel. If you break the expectation that this is going to be a traditional novel, and I think that helped me write the book. My first draft had a whole lot of Unusual things that I don't think I would have allowed myself to do if I hadn't given myself permission that way.
0: Can you read something that influenced you as a writer?
1: I was going to read this passage from War and Peace. Almost in the middle of that sky, over Prechistensky Boulevard, stood the huge bright comet of the year 1812, surrounded strewn with stars on all sides, but different from them in its closeness to the earth, its white light and long raised tail. That same comet which presaged, as they said, all sorts of horrors and the end of the world. But for Pierre, this bright star with its long, luminous tail did not arouse any frightening feeling. On the contrary, Pierre, his eyes wet with tears, gazed joyfully at this bright star, which, having flown with inexpressible speed through immeasurable space on its parabolic course, suddenly like an arrow piercing the earth, seemed to have struck here its own chosen spot in the black sky and stopped, its tail raised energetically, its white light shining and playing among the countless other shimmering stars. It seemed to Pierre that the star answered fully to what was in his softened and encouraged soul No, blossoming into new life.
0: Yeah, tell me why you chose that.
1: As I said, I've read uh, War and Peace like three times during the writing of this novel. And one of the things that I do love the Russian novelists about, and this particular passage as well, how you can actually speak about the soul and joy in a book and not feel like it's hokey. Like this is something that is important and uh, essential to our lives. And I think in our current writing these days, we are afraid to tackle these big things, this notion of the soul and life and joy. So I think reading something like this gave me permission to write my novel.
0: Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft.
1: Okay, Um, this part, I think, is um, from how Arshad reacts to listening to the Quran. And um, Arshad is the young kid we were talking about earlier. The Sunday Quran class, when he had first heard Imam Zia recite the surah, he had felt his limbs tingle the moment the opening word, la, resounded. In what seemed to him not Imam Zia's usual voice, but verging on a cry. No. Thereafter, each ayat seemed to reach toward him, a solar flare that surged with each prolonged vowel, seeking him out as if to sear him, receding only when sounding the final priming syllable. It started up again with the next ayat. He had felt himself grow feverish. Even the ayats with only short vowels were awful and awesome the flare engorging itself with each percussive rhyme as if pumping itself up in preparation finally at the word rakh that concluded one ayat, imam zia sustained the vowel so long that the flame succeeded in reaching arshad he had felt burned branded effaced and ecstatic
0: do you want to share anything else about that
1: yeah i think i was also reacting to this how do we write about the spirit and how it's affected, which we saw in that previous um, uh, passage I read with uh, Pierre seeing the star and that kind of joy that comes when you see something ineffable. And I think that is a big part of this book, this reaching out to something that we cannot see but can feel. And um, it was important to me, I think, when I wrote the scene to realize that that kind, we can maybe, it's religion here, but it could be other things as well. And I wanted that in the book. And I was happy that there was this one scene I could cap try to capture that.
0: Where do you write?
1: In my office, usually.
0: What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: I usually bike or run. And uh, it's usually either mu- uh, opera or dance if I have to watch something.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: These days, it's my partner, especially when I'm very uncertain about what I've written.
0: How have you dealt with rejection?
1: Two ways. One is to say, I'll show them. And in my more defensive moments, it's to say, uh, I don't want to be a part of something that doesn't want me.
0: What is your favorite word?
1: Mostly having to do with light. I would go with luminous. I just love how it seems to glow from the inside.
0: Thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Mitzi, for having me. This is wonderful.
0: If you liked today's show with Nawaz Ahmed, author of the novel Radiant Fugitives, check out my interview with Amitava Kumar, We talked about his book Immigrant Montana, the intersection of personal story and the happenings of the world, his literary inspirations, and the constant struggle to find new words. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 320 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Evie Wilde, Susan Orlean, Charlotte Wood, Peter Ho Davies, and Jean Hanf correlates. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.